Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live in the NASDAQ market today, overlooking New York City's Times Square. This is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Grub Flub shares melting more than 40% after quarterly results. The desk will grab some napkins, see if there's anything left to sop up. Plus, ahead of tomorrow's highly anticipated decision day, Jim Bianco says the Fed is playing with fire. We will discuss that. But we begin tonight with Boeing. See a Dennis Mullenberg getting grilled by lawmakers on Capitol Hill today over the 737 MAX crashes. Let's get straight to Phil Abo in D.C. with all the highlights. Hey, Phil. Melissa, the senators blasted Dennis Mullenberg time and again on a wide variety of issues. Some accused Boeing and the CEO of not being straight with them, outright lying to them in terms of certain questions about the 737 MAX. Others basically said to him, you're the CEO. How could you let this happen? You're the CEO. The buck stops with you. Did you read this document? And how did your team not put it in front of you, run in with their hair on fire, saying, we got a real problem here? Those pilots never had a chance. These loved ones never had a chance. They were in flying coffins. I would walk before I was to get on a 737 MAX. I would walk. There's no way. Just a few of the comments from senators uh, asking Dennis Mullenberg and also offering their opinions in terms of the 737 MAX. For Dennis Mullenberg's part, he said, time, he said time and again, look, safety is at the core of our mission. We are committed to making sure that the MAX is safe when it returns to flight and that the company makes changes that are necessary to ensure that this never happens again. And guys, as you take a look at shares of Boeing, yeah, this stock came back a little bit today. And people are saying, well, does that mean that Dennis Mullenberg did a good job on the Hill? No. It simply means that investors are looking at this saying, how much worse can it get? What's the worst that can happen for Boeing? Yeah, maybe this plane doesn't return to service by the end of the fourth quarter, but it will at some point, and there is a backlog of planes. And I know you guys have talked about this at length. I think that's what the investors were looking at today, saying, get past the headlines, get past a bad day for Dennis Mullenberg on the Hill, and focus on that backlog of 4,400 737 maxes. That all implies, Phil, that Congress will put the blame squarely on Dennis Mullenberg and Boeing and not necessarily on the FAA, which might cause the 737 max to be grounded for even longer and or change certification right. processes. Melissa, I think you're spot on with that. I think that the pressure is on the FAA and that when they finally decide, okay, we've got all the material that we need from Boeing for the recertification of the MAX, how long does it take for them to do this? Because they were embarrassed by what happened a year ago when the rest of the world grounded this plane while they repeatedly said, the data's not there, the data's not there. And now, everything that's come out in the last year, I mean, it's clear that the FAA is going to have to, to show Capitol Hill Yes, we understand our role as a regulator is not just to rubber stamp this plane. And, I mean, this also assumes that, well, regulators around the world, I'm assuming, watched this testimony as well. Oh, yeah. They can be even tougher than the FAA sure. in terms of getting that MAX recertified. 
Sure. And, and we'll see that with Europe. Now, they're not real yeah. far behind the FAA. They basically said, look, we're within weeks when the FAA signs off on it. We're probably just a little bit behind them. But China's the one to watch. And for all the reasons that we've talked about, Melissa, that this goes beyond just the certification process in China, there could be a political element of this involved sure. as well. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Uh, with today's testimony tomorrow, of course, uh, Mullenberg returns to the Hill uh, for the House. In the meantime, what Phil said was very interesting. Investors are assuming that the worst may be behind Boeing. Do you agree? Uh, for today, they did. And, and listen, I thought the stock would trade and test 321. I think that was the August low on October 21st. I think it traded 324 thereabouts on 15 million shares, which is about four times normal volume. So for the short term, at least, you have what we say is a pretty decent tradable bottom. But I'm hard-pressed to believe, given everything we've heard, that the headline risk still doesn't exist. And the FAA, they, for them to certify this plane going forward, they're going to have to go through things in the most rigorous way in the history of the agency. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, again, I'm hard-pressed to believe that we're on the other side of the bad news flow. So my take is... Rally should be sold. I think we go lower from here. Dan. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, the unknowns are just not quantifiable right here. And I think that uh, one of the senators made this point. He said, I would walk before I would get on. The-. That's going to be an issue that a lot of carriers are going to have to deal with just from a PR standpoint when they finally agree to take those planes. Will customers want to fly on them? We just don't know. And this is a, you know, a long time coming. And I just look at the estimates. You know, sales last year were $101 billion, expected to be $83 billion. And then I think consensus has them going up to 123. That's assuming that all these planes that are being built are going to be sold again. Boeing may end up holding billions and billions and billions of dollars of these planes before the carriers buy them again. And that's the point about China, I guess. All right. Yeah, and the stock's traded this way all year. For the better part of 10 months, we've been in this range between 320 and 380, let's call it. And effectively, what the investors have been doing is getting optimistic. Remember, oh, it was supposed to be first or second quarter of this year it was going to come out. Then it was going to be September. It keeps getting pushed back and push back. So we're in this optimistic phase, but I think I'm with everybody else here. You know, you get up to 360, 380, somewhere in that range, I'd be selling it because I do think it's going to be a long time. We don't know what kind of liability is there. We don't know how customers are going to respond to this. And then what are you, what are you buying here? Right? What are you trying to trade? What's the theme? You're trying to trade the airline industry, but you're also trying to trade defense. You have better ways to do that. You could buy UTX. You could buy Delta Airlines if you want to try to play those things and have none of the headline risk that Boeing has. But you might be also be try- trying to trade a duopoly. And that's right. a dynamic that exists here that's different from any other crisis that you can point to and try and make a comparison to. I was trying to make the comparison to Wells Fargo, yeah. but it's completely different in that they've only got, you've only got Airbus and you've only got Boeing. Which is the interesting part, and Dan brings up the unknowns, you bring up all the liabilities, and I don't disagree with that. And that's why I've had a really hard time. I've looked at this so many different times, Mel, where I've said, you know what, I think I'm going to buy it if it gets to this level. And I haven't done it. And why haven't I done it? Even with the duopoly, yeah. there's still an issue out there of we don't know what the actual impacts will be. I mean, I think the one thing that we can look towards in the future will be, I think they will eventually get that free, free cash flow back. I think there's a lot of things they'll get back. We know about the backlog. Their, their competitor has an unbelievable backlog. So where are people going to go if they jump out of Boeing? Are they really going to go to the competitor? Because if so, they're in a multi-year line, right? right. I mean, so there's that, that's what makes this so interesting. And I think that's why the stock hasn't cracked 
Otherwise, I think it should have been a 285 stock like it was a year ago, December. Never got down to those levels again. Key word is crack. I mean, I'm just, I've just pulled up the BP chart from 10 years ago, and I'm not saying that this is equivalent to what happened sure. in the Gulf in there, but that stock went from $60 to below 30 in a matter of you know months or something like that. And then at some point, you can say, listen, they, all these unknowns, the same thing, the sentiment's horrible. If I'm buying this for 10 years out, will I be okay? And you say probably, yeah, and it's worked out okay at some point. Mm -hmm. This one with Boeing, we just don't, it hasn't cracked, to your point. It just, it hasn't The resilience is right. the fact yeah. that I think yeah. stands out. And, and, I mean, it's been no, so right. resilient at these levels. There's saying that this is but. the deal of the century because of the duopoly or whatever you're saying. There's a lot of stocks out there to trade. Yeah. And so when there's this much confusion on trying to figure this one out, oh, I try. Right. It, it makes sense to Here's maybe look around. There's one question I asked yesterday, but you weren't here yesterday. No, I was gallivanting. You're gallivanting around. I don't know <laughs> what now. Um, here's a question. If Dennis Mullenberg steps, steps down, down, gets kicked out, whatever, does the stock go no, up I don't down? Think, what, in what do my think? opinion, I don't think that has any effect at all. Really? I mean, maybe knee-jerk it goes higher. But, I mean, if you're looking for a fall person on the back of this to rally the stock, I think you're looking at the wrong places. And I understand what everybody says in terms of the stock hasn't broken down in a meaningful way. But consider this. I mean, you've talked about the duopoly. I'll put, stock has been bolstered by the fact that the S&P 500 is at an all-time high. So you've had tremendous market tailwinds behind this, and it's still down from 450-ish back in February of last year, right? So, I mean, it's not like it hasn't... It has been punished. I, I think our point is we're surprised it hasn't been punished enough. But if the broader market were to ever to roll over for whatever reason... Mm -hmm. I don't think Boeing would be, um, I don't think they'd be Rubius. safe from that move. Okay. Um, for more on Boeing, let's bring in Ernie Arvey, the president of Air Insight Group. He's previously called for Mullenberg to step down. Ernie, great to have you back. Thanks, Melissa. Nice to be here again. Um, what to invest, I mean, if you take a look at the stock today, if the stock is up, we were talking about that. What do you think investors should know about this process that Boeing has in front of it to get the 737 MAX back in the air? Well, I think the process has been delayed several times. They still haven't made the final submissions to the FAA, although uh, if we believe Mr. Mullenberg, they're, they're getting closer. But uh, that still will take the FAA another five to six weeks to analyze after they get Boeing's final documentation. That puts us into, uh, into, next, into next year or late into December, and the airlines will take probably one to two months each to get back into service. So the earliest we see is right about the end of the first quarter of next year and prob more probably the second quarter mm -hmm. because there are a number of issues that have come up during that process that Boeing is, is addressing as well as the fundamental uh, problem with the MACS system. Um, people are so focused on Boeing and what Boeing can do to get that plane back in the air, Ernie, but in terms of the pressure on the FAA and the process by which it certifies aircraft, do you think that will have to change permanently and that that could actually cause a longer path before the uh, MAX gets back in the air? I think the process will change. I think the review we've had with international regulators will be thorough enough that once the uh, submission is made, the recertification process will probably go fairly smoothly. But for the next aircraft, for the 777X, for the new middle market aircraft that Boeing is doing, I think for those programs we'll see much more scrutiny from the FAA as the process changes. And I think the hole in the process right now is the organizational delegation authority, the ODA, in which Boeing employees can certify uh, certain requirements. And uh, where they used to have a direct link to the FAA, now they report to the FAA through Boeing managers. So that clear voice of uh, potential whistleblowing to the FAA has been eliminated. 
and that needs to change. Hey, Ernie, it's Brian Kelly. So is there precedent for customer acceptance of this? How long do you think it'll take for somebody, for a a client or a a passenger to want to step back on to one of these planes? We don't have a lot of data on that. Uh, We have to go back to uh, 1979 and the DC-10. And that took about six months to, uh, for passengers to get back on board that aircraft and, uh, and have similar load factors. But that was before social media. So we, we don't have the word of mouth that we have today through the Internet. We don't have Facebook. We don't have groups that could potentially uh, put together an Internet boycott of the airplane. So we don't yet know the answer. It could take, it could take a year before people got on, get back on board this airplane or longer. And if airlines find lower, lower load factors... Uh, that's an economic cost to them versus the competing aircraft, and that's going to reduce the value of the Boeing aircraft to them. We're just about out of time, Ernie, but we were talking about how investors are are happy to stay in the stock, at least for now, uh, because it is a duopoly out there. And I'm wondering, in your your experience, how, how solid is that duopoly, and have you seen instances where airlines could actually switch to a different plane by a different plane maker? The, the duopoly is, is pretty solid. It's difficult to switch if you're a major carrier with a large, with a large fleet because there just aren't 100 delivery positions at Airbus available next year. You've got to get in line and, and wait five or six years. Uh, but for the smaller carriers who buy twos and threes, uh, those can happen. And uh, Airbus can certainly increase capacity. It's putting another line in for the A220. It's got its Alabama line ramping up. Uh, there is capacity in the system at the at the margins, but uh, but you're right, there uh, there simply is no alternative to Airbus or Boeing at at this point until the the Chinese and the C919 enter the market with full production, which is probably not till 2025. Ernie, thanks for your analysis. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Melissa. Ernie RV. All right, so. <laughs> so, so, so we had a, last week. There was a lot of downgrades, right? And I think the bear case was that they, they are only going to be producing about like low 40s uh, per month, and and you know the bull case was at somewhere upwards of the high 50s or something like that. And talking about getting that free cash flow back to those prior levels in the low to mid 40s, it's just a disaster for a couple of years. And that's one of the reasons why you bought this stock because of that backlog, because of the free cash flow generation, and therefore the valuations just came down dramatically if you looked at a lot of the notes. So if they can't get above 50 anytime early 2020 it, it's just a no touch i think right now yeah i think if you're buying boeing here for a trade for you know 15 to 20 percent move you're betting on no further headline risk which i don't think any of us can say with any with any degree of certainty and you're also betting on the fact that the market's going to continue to grind higher so if you believe those two things there's absolutely upside back to that 375 level which if you go back and look that's where we broke down from in the late winter, early spring of this year. You just don't believe it. I know I don't believe it. And I you didn't don't make that. It. Well, and I just think it's bad. It. I think it's bad risk reward, right? Yeah. So, guys, talking about the fact that the mar- if the market goes up, this stock goes up with it. Well, why wouldn't I just buy the market? Because I'm taking the exact same risk. And if there's a headline that, wait a second, this gets delayed for six months or a major carrier changes, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Boeing goes down and the market could still go up. So it's a lose-lose. It's just terrible risk-reward in my The key is that we don't have a gun to our heads to have to make this trade. So there are other places we can make it and still have the same types of exposure. Coming up, Amgen and AMD both reporting earnings after the bell. We'll give you the highlights plus the market waiting on tomorrow's Fed decision. But Jim Bianco says the Fed is playing with fire. He'll tell us what he sees and why investors might get burned. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money after this.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amgen and AMD on the move, both reporting earnings after the bell. We've got full team coverage on the after hours action. Eric Chami, all over AMD, but we start with Meg Terrell with the biotech earnings roundup plus news out of J&J. Meg. It's been a busy day, Melissa. Let's start with Amgen. A big beat in a race for the quarter, and this, the stock initially jumped quite a bit in the after hours. However, it has settled back down uh, to just about flat, unchanged right now in the after hours, uh, essentially because, according to Brian Scorney at Baird, who really puts the fine point on it, as he so often does with these biotech names, quote, the highlight will be the guidance raise, but consensus was already there, so I don't see this as much of a surprise. So the company did raise both uh, top and bottom line guidance, but the street was already expecting it, guys. So that's probably why you're seeing Amgen uh, not up so much in the after hours. Merck and Pfizer also reported earnings this morning. Big beats and raise for both of those companies uh, and their stocks rose today on those results. However, year to date, both of those companies have gone in completely different directions. Pfizer still trying to recover basically from investor reaction to its deal with Mylan back in July. Now I want to move over to J&J because the stock is up more than 3% in the after hours. Uh, it was halted uh, just before the close. Uh, the news that we got is that J&J conducted a third party laboratory testing. So a third party lab conducted the testing of the bottle of baby powder that the FDA said it had found was contaminated with trace amounts of asbestos. And those two third-party labs say they found no evidence of asbestos in that bottle. They also conducted a number of tests on the lot that J&J voluntarily recalled of baby powder. It said out of an abundance of caution, found no asbestos in that lot either. Uh, Guys, when we initially communicated with the FDA about uh, its findings, they said there was no evidence of potential cross-contamination. However, that is what J&J is saying could have happened here. Um, So we're waiting to hear back from the FDA uh, about what it thinks, but J&J is saying no evidence of asbestos in that bottle and over 40 years of testing of its product. So just to be clear, Meg, J&J, two third-party labs tested the same exact bottle of talc that the FDA tested. So So they're saying basically that the FDA's lab got it wrong. That's what they are saying. And they paid this third-party uh, laboratory, these two labs? That's my understanding. Uh, okay. J&J contracted with these two third-party labs, yes. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell in Washington wrapping all the biotech and uh, healthcare news. Healthcare was the best-performing sector here. Does J&J fall into that category, Pete, <laughs> of those stocks where you've got all these other stocks in the world? Why do you need to trade J&J at this yes. point? Yes. It's a really easy answer for me. I'm not in it, but I am in Pfizer. I am in Merck. And when I look at the Merck numbers, they were absolutely outstanding. You look at the guidance that they gave. That was strong. Keytruda is just an unbelievable drug for them. It's up 62%. So there's a lot of good things going on right now when you're looking at the sales and everything in the growth factor from Merck. And I think in Pfizer, too, quite frankly, and I still think the pipeline's there. They have some issues going back a ways. But why not be in those names right now that you don't have as much headline risk? as J&J, where you don't know, is it going to be the opiates, is it going to be this, is it going to be that? Seems like there's always something hanging over them right now. Until that's removed, I see other places to be. You know, Ernie Arvey was making an interesting point about social media in terms of public acceptance of the 737 MAX when it gets back in the air. For this particular instance, you're a member of the public, you have a baby. 
are you going to now use talc? No. Because no. because J and J paid two labs to test their their product and they found nothing. No, you know the answer. The answer is of course not. I mean, the last thing you're going to want to be a guinea pig is is your children. So the short answer is no. At least I wouldn't. I can't speak for the entire right. 340 million people in the United States. But to Pete's point, I don't know why you'd have to go down that road. You know, I thought it would trade down to 121. I don't know how close it got, but I still think J and J said no touch quickly on Amgen because I think it's important to bring up. That was a very good quarter. I understand what Meg said. They raised their guidance. Now they're basically in line with where the street was. It doesn't mean the stock's still not cheap, though. And at 13 times next year's earnings, it's one of the cheaper biotechs. And Enbril, which is their big drug, they were expecting a decline revenues year over year. They actually increased by 6%, which is a really good sign. 208 quickly was the level it's topped out at a number of times going back to late 2018. That's where we are now. That's your bogey. But I still like this stock here. All right, let's move on to AMD. That stock is moving higher on the results. Eric Chami is at headquarters with the details. Hey, Eric. Hey, Melissa. That's right. It's been a volatile after our session for AMD, adding to what has been a mixed bag of earnings for the chip sector overall so far this season. AMD missing Wall Street forecasts on total sales just barely, but it did beat in the increasingly important data center category. The company's computing and graphics segment, which includes those data centers, rose 36% beating analyst projections. But two points of weakness, guidance for the current quarter, which came in a little light and could be a point of concern, as rival Intel said it anticipated strong spending in data centers for the rest of the year. Another worry, gross margins. Those came in only in line with expectations. Remember, Intel, despite a strong earnings beat last week, similarly disappointed investors with continued gross margin headwinds as the competitive chip landscape intensifies. The muted reaction after hours could also be something of a heat check for the stock, which is up nearly 80% this year. It's one of the top top performers in the SMH ETF. Investors will be listening closely for any further commentary on those headwinds related to ongoing trade tensions and new potential customer targets after landing Google and Twitter in August with its newest server chips. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Eric, thank you, Eric. Chemi back at headquarters. I like that phrase, heat check. Really nice use of the phrase, heat check. I mean, I think that's the main point. This stock is up 80% of the year. It just ran 20% into this print. And the fact that they came in in line with the quarter and guidance and the stock is basically unchanged after that move tells you that investors are optimistic about what comes next. And I think he just said it. It's about share gains that they've been taking it with their new server chip. It's specifically against Intel. Maybe that gross margin is an issue versus pricing with Intel, who's trying to get some of that share back. But the stock seems okay despite a pretty lackluster report. Yeah, I mean, it seems okay, but but to your point, it's already up so much. It looks like it's at resistance, and now you've got its competitor having shrinking gross margins. They have shrinking gross margins. Incredibly competitive environment. Why do you have to buy it here? I don't think you have to. I think you can wait for a breakout. You can wait for a breakout in the SMH for the momentum to come and then buy this one on the momentum. I think that's the way to play it. And, Brian, you talk about the competitive environment, and that's exactly what it is, and we talk about the margins as well. But one of these two two different companies, Intel and AMD, one of them actually guided for a stronger quarter next quarter. That was Intel. That's why I think Intel's trading up towards that 56 number, because it's had some positive guidance, and they're winning in data center, I think, right now. Because if you look at the contracts with Amazon and Microsoft, they seem to be positioned much better right now, in my opinion, especially after the run AMD's already had. And the valuation story is Intel's much more compelling than AMD at these levels. And go back last year if you just want to play stock market. I mean, here's a name in AMD that went basically from 15 to the levels we're at now in a straight line over three months, and then cratered, basically gave it all back in a month. 
Here we are seeing a similar type move from 20 to 34. We're into this quarter. Guidance was okay, but do you want to play stock market here at 32 times next year's numbers when this has been a resistance level? My instincts say take profits in AMD. All right. For more on all of today's big earnings, from Amgen to AMD, head on over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money here on CNBC. Here's what else is coming up this hour. Investors have lost their appetite for Grubhub, with shares notching the biggest one-day decline ever. We'll break down the future of the food delivery business. Plus, the most valuable public company in the world reports earnings tomorrow. A look at what the options market is betting Apple will say about its iPhone outlook. All that and more when Fast Money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. The countdown is on for the Federal Reserve's next big decision on rates. And while nearly 80 percent of those in the know are pretty confident we'll get another rate cut tomorrow, there are plenty of opinions floating around about what happens after that. CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman's got the details. Markets are pretty clear on what the Fed does this week, but the outlook gets murkier beyond that. 79% of respondents to the CNBC Fed survey look for a 25 basis point rate cut to be announced by the Fed. That would bring the funds rate down to a new level of 1.5 to 1.75%. But on average, the survey shows another rate cut is not expected until February 2020. Only 37% forecast a rate cut in December, so the majority banking on a pause. By the end of 2020, the funds rate goes down to just 1.4%, which is to say the market is not fully convinced of any more cuts after tomorrow. John Donaldson, director of fixed income at Haverford Trust Company, writes in response to the survey, quote, After the next cut, the Fed funds rate would re-enter the zone where there is no evidence that further cuts help the economy. If ultra-low rates and negative rates are such a panacea, why aren't Japan and Germany growing at 6% rather than teetering on recessions? While they're uncertain of future cuts, respondents are increasingly concerned over the effects of the trade war and global economic weakness on the U.S. economy. The chance of recession in the next 12 months stands at 34 percent. That's the highest level since 2011. But the base case of respondents, the U.S. continues to grow just more slowly. 2.9 percent GDP growth in 2018 is seen giving way to 2 percent growth this year and just one and three quarters percent next. Joel Naroff, president of Naroff Economic Advisors, writes, The most critical issue facing the economy is the trade war, and interest rate cuts will do little to change the course of growth as long as the threats of tariffs persist. 
76% of respondents say tariffs have resulted in higher prices for consumers, and 60% have cut their growth forecast for this year and next due to the tariffs. 46% say tariffs have lowered consumer spending. So the murky outlook for the Fed and the economy seem to flow directly from the uncertain outlook for tariffs and their impacts on the global and U.S. economies. Back to you. All right, Steve, thank you. Steve Leeson back at headquarters. As investors try to guess the Fed's next move, our next guest says the central bank is playing with fire by remaining passive in a world of rapidly falling rates. Let's bring in Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research Firm uh, from Chicago. Jim, great to see you again. Thanks, Bill. What do you mean by passive? What, what should the Fed be doing? Well, we live in a global world, and we live with global interest rates as well, too. Right now, for the first time ever, the funds rate is the highest in the developed world, the highest policy rate in the developed world. We also have the highest 30-year uh, bond rate, the only one over 2% in the developed world. I think people first have to recognize we have high rates in the U.S., and that you have to get used to this idea that zero and one is kind of the reg regular rate. Second of all, if Europe is at zero and negative, there's a bunch of big multinational companies that can borrow at zero in Europe to fund their operations. U.S. companies, U.S.-only companies don't have that luxury. So they're put at a competitive disadvantage. So, yes, if Europe lowers their rates, it forces us down. Now, they could get on the phone and call the ECB and call the Bank of Japan and say, you've got to raise your rates, you've got them at the wrong level. But if they're going to drag them down the negative, they're going to force us lower, too. And if the Fed wants to stick their head in the sand and say, I don't care where the rest of the world is, this is where we should be, I think they're going to make a mistake because they're going to put U.S.-only companies that can't borrow at zero in other countries at a disadvantage. So you think the Fed should go to zero? I don't think the Fed should go. Actually, I think that Europe and Japan should raise rates. Well, is that's what they not going to I mean, I don't think we have much control over that. So <laughs> right, but I think we should be calling them <laughs> and telling yeah, them what yeah. to do. What should we do? We should go more closer to 1%, maybe even under 1%, because we have to stay in that range. Again, this is the world we live in. If they're going to go down there, we cannot ignore it. And we have to kind of follow suit as well, too. So, Jim, you're speaking in terms of what it means for U.S. corporations, multinationals. I get it. But is this bigger than just that? I mean, is this a rabbit hole that the world seems to be going down that there is no escape from? And the, the, the collateral damage will be far bigger than just Honeywell not making numbers one quarter? Yeah, I mean, there, there's two ways to answer that question. Yes, there is a rabbit hole we're going down in the form of negative rates. That's a giant mistake. That should be undone. But then there's another, if you would, rabbit hole in that we live in a world of technology. We live in a world of aging populations that demand safe investments like fixed income securities. And that's why we keep pushing interest rates lower and lower. It's amazing that I hear American investors keep complaining about 2% yield, whereas I was like, you'd be lucky you're not a European investor. They have negative rates. Get used to this. This is the world we're in right now. That zero one two is where interest rates should be, two being on the high end of the curve. Those that are pining for the 5 or 6 or 7% worlds, you're only going to get that if we have a mistake, and you're not going to like it because of the mistake that would cause us to have rates go that high again. So, Jim, this is Brian Kelly, but what about the argument, the other side of it, saying the reason why Japan and Europe, and Japan in particular, has been mired in this kind of slow growth for years is because their savers are not getting anything on the money that they save. So you're here in the U.S., it's only 2%, but at least they're getting something on their savings, which puts a little bit more money into the economy, and that's the reason why the Fed shouldn't cut. I think that that argument is true, but it's got, it's got kind of the causality backwards. 
It is the aging population of Japan and the massive number of savers that are plowing in the fixed income investments that first push their rates down to very low levels. And then the central bank takes it over the finish line to negative. Look, the central banks can't take rates where they would normally be at 6%, say, 10 years ago, and magically make them negative. You have to have a combination of no inflation and you got to have demographics of old people looking for investments to get them down to zero to one to begin with. Then the central bank could maybe kick in and push it to negative. So even without the central bank, their rates would still be very close to zero anyway, given the massive investment need that they have of their aging population. They don't buy stocks. They buy fixed income when you get over the age of 65. Just to connect this all, your analysis, Jim, to the stock market, domestic borrowers, meaning small caps, get hurt because they have to borrow at a higher rate, and then international, multinational companies get dinged by the stronger dollar. It sounds like no one benefits here. Yeah, they don't. And you can see it in the, I think you see it in the way the stock market trades. First, the debt-to-equity ratios in the Russell 2000 are actually now higher for the first time in decades than the S&P 500. And the Russell 2000 has been underperforming. Now, there's other reasons that's happening, too. But one of the things is those companies are at a competitive disadvantage to the larger companies. IBM's got 15,000 employees in Europe. They can borrow at zero to fund that. If you're a domestic computer maker, you can't borrow at zero to fund anything. So you put it at a disadvantage relative to them. Jim, great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Jim Bianco, Bianco Research in Chicago. It's hard to argue with what his point is, that the new normal is zero to one to two. Yeah. If you look at the 30-year Treasury over the last, or the, excuse me, the 10-year Treasury yield over the last 30 years, you just see a slope that goes like this. It bottomed out at, what, 142 just this year. And we've seen at these peaks, we saw in 2000, we saw six and a quarter on the 10-year Treasury yield. In 2007, we saw five and a quarter. We just saw three and a quarter. What happens when we have those kind of touch of the downtrend? We see stock Stock market palpitations. The first two I mentioned, 50%. Last fall, 20%. Who knows what the heck happens here, but we're back down below that trend, even at 1.8. You know, he was talking about this 0, 1, or 2%. So where do you go? And he talked about internationally, they all go to fixed income. That's not what we see here. And that's part of the reason that we're getting such a bullish push, I think, in the stock market. Doesn't mean it's not dangerous, but that's where people are going because that's the only place they can go for any yield. Coming up, Grubhub getting served, having its worst day ever. We'll break down why that stock has failed to deliver for investors. Plus, we've got the latest episode of The Streaming Wars. More details on the movers and shakers that are disrupting the streaming landscape. Much more coming up on Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for a little buzzkill. Check out shares of Grubhub posting its worst day ever, down more than 40% after failing to deliver on its earnings results yesterday. The food delivery company also lowering its guidance, blaming what it calls promiscuous diners for spreading the love. So its competition in the food delivery space is only getting more fierce. Is the pain just beginning for Grubhub, Guy? Yes. Yes. And, and I'm saying this when the stock gets down 40% in a day. In a day. Yeah. And this is not, I mean, this is, I think the market cap of this company is was a $4 billion market. I mean, that's not an insignificant company. So I don't know about promiscuous. I mean, I would, that's a poor choice of words. Well, but, you get the gist of what no, he's I, saying. No, I totally get the gist of it. They have no pathway. I mean, I don't know 
how their margins are going to improve, how their profitability levels are going to improve in the world that we currently live in. I saw Jason Helpstein on with you today. I watched the network all day long. I love it. And I saw that interview. And he made a point of saying he had to go from wherever he was. He had to totally do a 180. And that's significant. I think the street's probably still offsides on this name. And I still think there's further room to the downside. The point with promiscuous diners is that there's no loyalty to any delivery company. There's only loyalty to food arriving at your doorstep. Exactly. Exactly. And the restaurant that you go to, it doesn't matter. If I've got four different delivery apps on my phone, I don't care which one as long as they get me the food that I want. So there's massive competition, razor-thin margins. It's a recipe for disaster. The one name that I was surprised didn't get hit harder on this is Uber, because that's where a lot of the growth from Uber was supposed to come from. Uber Eats. So we know that they don't necessarily have to make money, but I would think that this squeezes those margins as well. Competition's killing them all. Mm-hmm. Uber, Lyft, Slack all have major competitors in different categories, right? Uber and Lyft, obviously, not only in the moving people around, but also in the delivery world or whatever. So when you look at some of these names, Mel, I just don't understand, when are they going to make money? And how do they show us they're going to be able to make money at some point in time, especially as competition gets bigger and bigger and bigger? So if I'm looking at Grubhub, to Guy's point, 40% trimming doesn't make me interested at all. As a matter of fact, it makes me think that there's a lot more downside at this point. Yeah, from early 2016, this stock went from 20 bucks to $150, and that was when the valuations of all the private comps were just exploding right. because of the money that was being uh, put into them, obviously, by the VC community. And I think it's really important to remember, this is a company that is growing sales 25 30% a year. I mean, there is a need for these services. Like, you know, it's just whether or not investors are willing to pay these multiples for them. And that's why we haven't seen DoorDash and Postmates and some of these other guys come public yet. I suspect, and I've been saying this for a while, you're going to see a lot of consolidation here. This is going to have to be a feature of a larger platform that they can absorb the losses. And maybe that looks like an alphabet because they're interested in the data Data, or it looks like an Amazon right. because they're interested in the data. Plug it into something else and figure out how to, how to use it because, to your guys' point, the margins just aren't there to do this as a standalone business. Amazon's interesting. They tried it. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Then they got out. They'll yep. probably never get back in. Coming up, we are less than 20 minutes away from AT&T's unveiling of HBO Max. We'll tell you what to expect from the launch and how it could shake up the streaming wars. Plus, Apple gearing up for earnings after the bell tomorrow. We'll tell you how options traders are betting the tech giant will move off those results. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. AT&T throwing the latest blow in the streaming wars with the launch of its HBO Max. For all the details, let's get to Julia Borson in Los Angeles. Hi, Julia. Melissa, AT&T is about to start an investor presentation about HBO Max. It's expected to unveil pricing for the streaming service, a launch date, and a look at some of the exclusive content that will be included. Now, pricing in particular will be very much in focus because HBO Max aims to expand on the content that's included in HBO Now. That's an OTT service which costs $15 a month. Worth noting, that's more than Netflix's most popular subscription, which is $13 a month. And Apple and Disney streaming services have both priced lower than expectations. Apple TV Plus at $5 a month and Disney Plus at $7 a month. Now, HBO Max is expected to introduce a lower cost 
ad-supported version next year. And remember that NBC Universal, CNBC's parent, is also planning to launch ad-supported Peacock coming up in April. Now, to quickly scale their subscriber bases, all of these streaming players have been announcing deals to get their services into consumers' hands. AT&T COO John Stanky revealing Friday that HBO Max will be available for free to 10 million of its current subscribers. Disney is partnering with Verizon. It will offer Disney Plus to 50 million subscribers for a year. And T-Mobile struck a deal with Quibi ahead of its launch next year. And then Apple is giving an annual subscription with every device purchase. Gene Munster estimating the sale of about 280 million Apple devices in the next year. And it'll be a busy rest of the week for streaming Friday, Apple TV Plus launches. And Netflix will release Martin Scorsese's The Irishman in limited release before it starts streaming at the end of the month. Melissa? All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. A lot of pressure on these guys, Dan. Yeah, so Disney's the one that's really interesting to me. I love that Verizon announcement. This company's going to report next week. And I suspect that they're just not going to have a huge update on the stuff that people want to keep it up where it is. But that may be a great opportunity because back in April when they launched the service, the stock gapped above, you know, from 120 to 130. It's been basically above that since then. I'd love to see a little bit of a gap fill. I think that would be a great opportunity to buy this stock in the 120s because I think you want to own this into 2020. Say what you want about AT&T. I mean, they reported yesterday, then they gave you this three-year guidance and capital allocation plan. It actually makes a little bit of sense. It's hard to say they're going to be able to adhere to it or hit the numbers, but let's just play the game for a second and say they do. Current valuation makes this stock, I think, really cheap. So good for AT&T for having some vision. They invested a lot of money over the last five or six years. They seem to be reaping some of the rewards, and I think the stock is cheap here. And, by the way, Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see this movie, The what Irishman. Movie? Didn't oh. you hear Julia oh. Borston is talking about The Irishman? The Irishman, yeah. You're going to watch it. It's like yeah, a three-hour sure. movie. Is, is it, it that long? Sure. I can't too wait. Long. Oh, it's That's too long. That's long. Really too long. I'll just That's watch the trailer. Yeah. yeah. They run out of popcorn. <laughs> I can just visit relatives if I want three hours of Irishman. <laughs> In terms of the pricing, Julia makes a good point in terms of the HBO Max. I mean, there's going to be pressure to price it lower than what HBO is, is offered at, which is 15 bucks a month to compete with all these other guys. Yeah, I mean, again, we talk about uh, how much competition is out there. There's another industry that's seeing that competition out there. I think of anything, you know, I would go with what Dan said. I was looking at Disney, I think $120. That's probably where I want to get it. I think that's a decent place to get into the name. It's all about the subscribers, right, I, I think. And if you're starting off with a great number, what you're looking at, Apple and some of these others, it's incredible what the opportunities are. I think in Disney's case, I own it, like it. I did think it was in front of itself. I just continue to sell calls against it. I'll continue to do so because I think that's the way to hold on to a stock like that where I feel like it's a little bit overpriced right now, where it was, especially when it was 140 now under 130. I'd still, I'd love to see it get to 120. I could buy more, sell more calls. Yeah. One quick point about yeah. Apple service. I just would not expect this to be a huge driver for them. When you think about it, they're giving a lot of subscriptions away. Or did they say for, that it would be? No, to I, be fair. No, but right? That being I mean, said, but people got excited about all these other services right. for these stocks, and I just make the point that Apple Music took a very long time to ramp up. And so, to me, given their installed base and given what the quality of their offering is relative to the other ones, this is going to take some years. Up next, it is a countdown to Apple earnings, and options traders are betting the tech giant will shine on the results. We'll break down all the action. Speaking of tech, Jim is breaking down all the Twitter turmoil this month and how to trade this stock. He's got that and much more coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. We are live in Times Square, New York City. Much more Fast Money still ahead.
Welcome back to Fast Money Tech Titan. Apple will take center stage when it reports earnings after the bell tomorrow. And when the results cross the wire, options traders think the stock could hit all-time highs. Dan Nathan's heading over to the plasma. Take a bite out of the action. It hit all-time highs today. Dan? Yeah, all-time high, big reversal mail off that all-time high. Call volume ran kind of hot. It was one and a half times that um, of puts today. And like you said, that earnings report tomorrow after the close, the implied move in the options market is about 4.5%, which is actually shy to the 5.5% average over the last four quarters. The stock's been moving pretty heftily over the uh, last few quarters here. So let's look at the action today. Um, the most active strike was the November 1st weekly 250 calls. A little more than 26,000 of those traded at an average price of 313. Maybe 13,000 of those uh, or so were opening. And when you think about that sort of price action, weeklies into an event like this, you're just saying that these are traders looking to kind of play that momentum that's been in place over the last few weeks into what they expect to be um, a good earnings report. Let's just go to the chart, though, and one of the reasons why you might want to define your risk if you are going uh, bullish into this print here. You know, we know about a few weeks ago, the stock broke out above that all-time high from about a year ago here, and it just kept on going until today. We had that little move here. But this stock is up 54% of the year. It's up 70% from that low that it made on January 2nd after it had that very disappointing Q1 in China um, last year. And I just want to make a point. You know, a lot of people have been saying that this company deserves a higher multiple for that blended um, rate between hardware and software. Well, if you look at this this chart right here, this is the P.E. It's trading at nearly 19 times. That is near a 10-year high and a P.E. to growth um, closer to two. That's also getting towards highs. So to me, I think the valuation looks full. The stock looks extended. I would not be a buyer in this thing. If I was, I'd look to define my risk with calls. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more Options Action, tune into the live show this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade, Petey. The call buying in Fitbit is ridiculous. I bought some calls today, too, because I think this thing's going to go somewhere a little bit higher. Get it up. BK, Brian Kelly. You know, natural gas was up almost 7% today. One way to play the longer-term cold trend CRK, follow Jerry Jones. Hmm. Yeah, so Apple, I think you'd have to have your head checked to buy it into the print after this run. But calls at the money are 2%. That's how you play it if you're bullish. But I... You'd have right. to have your, your head, head checked. 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 That's not, not like, like a heat hockey, check. Like it's not like hockey, like checked out. Like checked out. Right. Check, In other check. words, you need some help. You need somebody to sort of talk you we off. We have the 10 point. seconds for your final trade, sir. Pfizer <laughs> drug, the quarter is good. Thank <laughs> you. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.